Welcome to another episode of Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, we're speaking with Robert Bartlett, who's a UK executive of L1 Property. We don't usually get into specific strategies, but this is a very niche, interesting idea in investing in UK property and apartment blocks where we think there's an opening in the market and a great way for people to diversify their investment portfolios. Uh, Robert's a really interesting guy with a lot of experience and adds a lot of value in this area. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast, provide feedback, like it and share it. Thanks for your feedback. Enjoy the podcast. Robert Butler, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thank you very much. And welcome Great to, to us- be here. Yeah, welcome yeah. to Australia. Yeah, thank you. Robert, perhaps we could kick off with you giving us a little bit of a background on yourself. <clears throat> okay, so, uh, well, my background in terms of uh, working life was uh, goes back to the uh, mid-80s when I actually started working in the sort of corporate finance investment banking world for, for what are now defunct banks of Schiss and Lehman Hutton and Dean Resett Reynolds. Uh, that was over in the United States in New York. I, I, I went to university in the States in the early 80s. Um, I, I then moved back to the UK in 1990 and uh, took a brief time, spell of time off work to uh, compete in the 92 Olympic Games in the rowing team uh, and, and really got down to proper work after my wife told me I had to get a proper job in 1993, which was uh, when I moved into the UK property industry. So I've now been involved in the UK property industry since that time. Uh, I was an equity partner of a uh, agency business called Clutton's, which is an agency and advisory business in London. Uh, very old, well-established firm, originally established in, I think, 1765, so very old business. Uh, I ended up as uh, sort of managing director, chief exec of that business. And then in 2006, I acquired uh, the Chesterton's business, which went into administration. Uh, and I ran that for the last 11 years before selling out of that last year. Uh, to set up my own investment advisory business and also to come on board as uh, a senior investment director for this L1, for the L1 First Property Fund uh, to help give them a steer and advice uh, into the UK market. Thanks for the summary. And I think the first thing that stands out there that all my listeners are going to catch on to is I noted the first time I met you, I was sitting next to someone with a uh, Garmin sports watch on. Um, and then when I checked things further that uh, you'd actually rode uh, for, the U, uh, for, the, for the UK national team, both at the Olympics and numerous national championships. Yeah. And, and I, I love the story you tell, and you know, of course Australians, when they think about rowing, talk yeah. straight about the uh, awesome, awesome foursome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, I, I suppose you get that everywhere down here. And uh, I, I like the story you tell that you, um, you didn't see a lot of them, unfortunately, because of course in rowing you face the other way. You're facing backwards. Yeah, so sadly, I think I probably saw them for about 20 seconds off the start line, and, and then they were gone. <laughs> yeah, well, look, uh, I... they, they, they first hit the scene, I think. I remember very well in uh, Spain in 1985 uh, at the Under-23 World Championships, and these guys turned up, and no one knew who they were, and everyone expected the Germans, and East, East and West Germans, to be the top favourites, and uh, they just absolutely blitzed it. It was amazing to watch. Wow. Yeah. So uh, my son rose um, at school, and you know I'm a kind of wannabe father rower, 
Um, but the, the one thing I will say that I, I see out of it is it produces these wonderfully tenacious people that, that don't give up. And uh, to row at that sort of level, I think, speaks volumes, in, in my book anyway. So yeah, thank you. Um, thank you. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the involvement with L1 because many of our listeners, listeners will be familiar with Mark and Rafi and you know, the wonderful business they've built and the wonderful advisory results they've had and the awards that they've won through Best Performing Hedge Fund and all numerous awards and stunning results. How did that come about? Because they've been an Australian equity manager essentially and an equity manager and um, you know, your expertise and what we're going to talk a little bit about is UK property. So mm. how did that come about? Yeah, so 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 I don't think uh, L1 ever set out to go and start up various other other funds in different parts of the world. They they it really came about because Keegan, who is the uh, chief investment officer of L1 Property Funds, uh, who is well known uh, to Mark and Rafi, uh, was talking to them about some investments that he had made. Uh, and they got very excited by that and thought, gosh, this is, you know, that's really interested and interesting and we want to do that ourselves. Uh, so, so they got involved with Key and I think on, on a personal level. And then they went, well, hang on, you know, this is a great asset class, which can clearly deliver some fantastic returns. You know, why don't we offer this to our client base as well? Uh, which was the point where they then started to think about how they could structure a fund for this. Um, and, and then I got involved with them. I met up with Key. He, he, he contacted me in February of last year, 2017, uh, and was sort of asking my advice. And we were making various sort of comments and talking about the, the various strategies. Uh, and we put together a strategy that we felt was going to be very compelling, uh, not only for ourselves, but for, for other people. So I think it's very important you know, to, for people to understand that uh, the, all the guys at L1 have invested pretty heavily in, in, in these funds themselves. So. That's the type of endorsement we like, yeah. the type of positions yeah. we tend to like, and access uh, seems to be one of the most difficult things. I was hugely impressed by Key, and uh, you know, I, I liked the comment that I think, what was it, he finished um, high school in year 10, okay. um, you know, top of the class, and finished his degree at university when he should have been in year 12 with honours and uh, clearly a, a very bright a very bright guy. So talk a little bit about that strategy. I know it's something that we've used for clients because we see it as something that can give good growth in a very diversified way yeah. for a part of their portfolio. Um, talk us through that strategy. So it, it the, the fundamental strategy is really quite straightforward. You know, what we had identified was that in the past 10 years post the global financial crisis, we, which clearly hit Britain very hard, obviously Australia hardly noticed it as far as I can tell, um, but, but UK property prices took a massive dive in, in 2008, anywhere between 15 and 25%. Uh, and whilst we saw London rebound extremely quickly, uh, what we noticed that across the rest of the UK, in, in our other big cities, uh, Manchester, Birmingham, Newcastle, cities of that ilk, uh, the property prices just really didn't didn't move at all and hadn't moved for, for the next sort of seven or eight years. Uh, and that's fundamentally really down to the fact that a lot of the UK banks got into deep trouble post-financial crisis. 
the main lenders like RBS and Lloyds had to be bailed out by the UK government. Uh, very stringent uh, banking regulations came in from the EU, uh, and it basically meant the credit uh, for for all other than the kind of very rich really dried up, uh, and it became a big big issue for people. Getting mortgage finance was very hard, uh, and as we always know, you know, credit actually drives property markets. Mm -hmm. uh, so when there's no credit available, property markets pretty much stagnate and, and don't move. What we noticed was about 24 months ago now that, that the markets had started to release a bit more credit into the market. Uh, there were a lot of secondary lenders coming in. So, so in England, what we call the building societies, private equity funds, uh, who could see a competitive place there. Uh, and the result of that is that actually, with our extremely low interest rate environment, and, and we've got a base rate of 0.5%, it's, it's been 0.25% since 2009. We had a 25 basis point tick up in February this year. Um, that mortgage rates are extremely low. So you can borrow money, two year fixed rate for just over a little over 1%, uh, and actually five year fixed rate mortgage for, for a little under 2%. So actually the cost of ownership is, is actually extremely cheap versus the cost of renting. And um, but during that period of property stagnation, obviously people have to live somewhere. So the private rented sector, as I would call it, really started to, to boom. And I, th I think the, the stats are that it went from about 15% of the UK population to an excess of 30%. Um, and, and that market has grown and grown and grown and has become actually a very accepted part of the housing market. Whereas I think I might have argued back in the 80s and 90s, you know, everyone's ambition was to own a house in, in, by, by the time they were 25 or at least a small apartment. Mm -hmm. uh, now that ambition's just not there. These, you know, my, my kids who are in their 20s, their view is they'll probably earn their first property when they're in their late 30s. So uh, it's, a, it's a very different sort of social dynamic to, to what we witnessed beforehand. So with more people coming into the rental market, we saw rental prices increasing rapidly uh, over that sort of eight-year period. Uh, and we got to a point where the yields on rental property outside of London looked to us to be extremely compelling. So typical average yield is about 7%. Uh, if you go into the sort of more secondary cities and towns, then actually we can achieve yields of in excess of that. But, but this fund, and our, our first fund and now our second fund, are not, that, not about trying to chase the highest yield. It's, trying, it's about chasing very good, secure income, which is still yielding 7 or 8% to us. So in fact, I think our average yield, uh, gross yield on fund one is, is just in excess of 8%. Now, when you couple that with the fact that we can borrow money extremely cheaply, uh, so our, our, our current borrowing rate is 2.4% in fund one, uh, there's a fantastic arbitrage there between uh, grossing up effectively your, your, your rental yield borrowing at 60%, which is what we typically look to do, up to 60%, uh, that compounds our, our return on our cash dramatically. So actually what we look to be able to deliver uh, in fund one is a, is a dividend yield back to our investors uh, in the region of 8% per annum. And you've structured it over a seven-year period, yeah. and you've been able to lock in 
or fix most of the interest rate risk associated with that over a substantial amount of that yeah. period. So, so, so what we've done is, so, so clearly uh, the risk, we're trying to mitigate risk wherever we can. So, so there, there are obviously two risks from an Australian perspective. Uh, for one is, a, is an FX risk. So we offer a hedged class of, of unit uh, or an unhedged. Most people like the exposure to the pound at the moment yeah, because you're at record lows the, and the, after Brexit and consensus is that that's a good position to have, yeah. i.e. it's going to rise. A, a, exactly. So, so in fund one, despite the fact that it looks like we've been able to lock in a, effectively a 15% uh, guaranteed return over the seven years of that fund because of the FX uh, swap rates, um, actually the vast majority of the investors said they thought we, the pound was going to appreciate much more than that and, and have gone un, unhedged on that basis. Uh, and similarly in fund two, we're going to offer the hedged or unhedged FX. So at the moment, it looks like the swap rate difference will create a, a return over the seven years of 11% on the currency fluctuation. So if, so if you have the investor who, who really wants to be ultra cautious, then they would probably take that route. Those people who are more bullish on the pound increasing, which which I think generally is is the consensus, uh, would probably go on edge. Let's helicopter back up a little bit and mm. talk. So what you're talking about is buying a portfolio of residential properties in the UK in cities outside of London, property purchase prices somewhere between three million pounds and fifteen million pounds. Correct. So, so I think what's very important to put across is that that so we're not buying individual houses. Yes. Uh, we're buying blocks of apartments, uh, and they in themselves are actually a, a fully fledged institutional asset class in the United Kingdom. I, I, I think it's somewhat different over here, and that that doesn't really exist as an asset class. Um, but a lot of the big pension funds and, uh, and financial institutions are really quite heavily invested into this asset class uh, because they see it as, as very stable, good long-term income. And of course, if you're a pension fund, you, know, you, you can buy and hold these assets for, for many, many years uh, and you're just taking the income off them because we have about a 97% occupancy rate across the UK. Uh, that 3% of inoccupancy is, is effectively just people moving in and out of apartments. Mm -hmm. so, so there's a very certain level of income here. Let's talk a little bit about the demand drivers if we, if we can. So traditionally for property, you're talking about um, you know, economic growth and prosperity if people have jobs, immigration, uh, infrastructure. What do you see as the main demand drivers and how do they position into this offering? So what we've been very specifically focused on is those main cities outside of London. Uh, so, so typically in Fund 1, we've invested heavily into Birmingham and Manchester and Leeds. Uh, and the reason why we've liked those cities specifically is the fact that there's a huge amount of government infrastructure spend going on. Uh, that spend is actually extending right up into the north of England now. So, so other cities like Newcastle, and that's through things like the high-speed rail network, which is going to cut journey times between cities and, and down to London by, you know, 50%. It's going to make it... So I think I heard, you know, the conversation that you can, you will be able to get when this train's finished, which is in the pipeline, yeah, five days away. It's yeah. happening. Yeah. Uh, 47 minutes from London to Birmingham. Correct. 
Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. So and what's that take now? So at the moment, it's roughly two hours, just over two hours. So so it's going to cut your journey time very, very considerably. So you will see people living there that may even commute to London. Yeah. At the moment, you have, a, you have a situation because capital values in London are so high now. So Median so house price? Median house price across the greater London area is nearly half a million pounds. Okay. So, and if you're in central London, uh, you know, your median house price is, is, is around a million pounds. And, and, and you're talking about a million pounds for a small one-bedroom apartment. So you need to own Chelsea or be a, Rus a Russian oligarch to uh, own property uh, in London uh, these days. Exactly. Most of the Brits are now priced out, and central London is very much the uh, bastion of uh, Europeans and far people from the Far East and the Middle East. Okay. Um, and um, but but basically, what that means fundamentally for you know most workers, most people in the workforce, is is that if you're on the average London salary, which is about thirty-seven thousand. Um, you're probably having to commute for an hour, hour and a half every day, each way, just to get to your office. So actually, you could live in Birmingham and have a roughly 50-minute commute um, to get into central London. Uh, the difference being that in Birmingham, the average house price in central Birmingham is about 160000 160000 Wow, that's yeah. a big differential. So but I, I think you've also seen some trends of some pretty significant UK organisation and banks moving <coughs> offices from out of London and up into uh, Birmingham and places like that. You know, with Birmingham, Leeds and Manchester being identified in the in the first tranche of the fund that you've done. Um, well, that 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 again is part of the key drivers that we're looking at. So where where's the employment going to? Uh, we're, we're we're seeing a flight of people outside of out of London. Uh, HMRC, I think it was 34,000 people they've moved out uh, to, to other cities. Deutsche Bank, 5,000. HSBC, 2,000 people. Santander, same sort of numbers. So, so a lot of these big organizations, the BBC moved their entire network and headquarters to Manchester. Um, <clears throat> so a lot of these organizations are feeding huge numbers of, of you know, relatively well-off, well-paid, white-collar type working workforce into these other cities. So this is creating quite a lot of gentrification in these other cities. Um, I think it's fair to say that a lot of the northern cities in England were very much underinvested in in the sort of post-war years. Uh, the current government is absolutely determined through what they call the northern powerhouse to invest very heavily, uh, not through just, just through these infrastructure projects, but, but in terms of Local regeneration as well. So, so if you now go to the centre of Manchester, uh, which of course has become more on the sort of global map because of things like Manchester City Football Club, which is now owned by the Abu Dhabi uh, uh, funds, and um, through all of those sort of things, that, that you're seeing a lot of gentrification. So there's now fantastic restaurants there. You know, there's a reason why people want to go and live there. It's 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 you know not just because it's cheap property, but they can't change the weather. They can't change the weather, sadly. The, not. <laughs> the, the, the prices in those areas, Rob, unlike <clears throat> London, haven't moved a lot uh, since the GFC. In the last couple of years, we've probably seen them move a little bit. Yeah. Can you talk to us about those trends, please. Okay, so so tier one cities. So so we're now starting to see these tier one cities appreciate in capital value. So so in the last couple of years, they've they've basically gone back to what is the long term UK average. Uh, house price increase run rate of about six percent per annum. Uh, so, so for 
from our perspective, that's just fantastically good news, but it was not what we were all about. So, so, so with the, both of these funds, it, they're very much around the income play that we recognized off that. Uh, and the ca any capital appreciation that we saw coming through was was effectively a nice to have on top of it, uh, and um, and as a result of that, we we can see very clearly that if we can get six percent sort of annual house price inflation on top of our eight percent dividend, um, you know we're we're into a very decent double double figure ret annual return, uh, and that's not just a return over one year or two years. You know that's that's consistent across. The sort of six seven years of the fund, so so it's actually a very good compounding effect on the money. Rob, can you talk to me a little bit about the experience in the first fund of acquiring these? And I've seen some data that shows and seem to indicate that you've bought them at significant discount to market rate. Explain yeah. how you've been able to do that and why you've been able to do that. Okay, so firstly, we we're typically looking, uh, as you alluded to earlier, at, at assets between about three and 15 million pounds. That's important to us because up to three million pounds, you get a lot of private individuals investing, but at three million pounds plus, it starts getting a little rich for, for, for most people. Um, but below sort of 15 million, the institutions just aren't interested. They, you know, it's not a big enough ticket to do the DD on. Um, so, so we identified that as a, a pretty rarefied at atmosphere. That's not to say there's no competition. Clearly, there's always some competition, but but generally we find the competition is 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 much less. Uh, in terms of the actual assets we've acquired, so in Fund One, our average asset has actually been acquired at a 20% discount to market value. So, people have asked me how how we've managed to do that. Well, firstly, it's because we spend a huge amount of time trying to source things outside of what I call the open market. So a lot of what we have bought, about 55%, was never went into the marketplace. So uh, as an example, we, we, we've acquired assets from banks where these assets have been in receivership. The bank may have lent 65p in the dollar on them. Um, they don't benefit from any upside as long as they get their par value back. So we've, we've been able to go in and, and offer them, you know, effectively that par value. We, we never know exactly what their par value is, but, but we, we know it's at a discount to the market because they're never going to have lent 100%. And um, that's enabled us to acquire these assets from the banks directly out of receivership. They like that because it's certain, you know, we're able to come in uh, and give them absolute certainty of transactions. So as far as they're concerned, that that's a great deal. They've uh, got their money back. And they've got their money back, so they don't mind. So that's sort of one example. Another example is we, we bought a big block in Birmingham from a housing association where housing associations are sort of quasi-government bodies uh, which provide uh, subsidized housing, not necessarily um, Bad quality housing, but you know, so this, that block was only a couple of years old. Um, but they subsidised the rent uh, for 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 the people who live in it. And what we had seen, because they have to publish their accounts, was this one particular housing association had very very high debt levels. Uh, we made some investigation into that, discovered actually their bondholders were quite keen for some of that debt to be paid down. Uh, so we were able to go in. And, and looked through their portfolio, found this one asset um, that they had, and uh, we were able to do a deal where we could just buy it there and then. The whole, it was 72 units, we could buy all 72 units. And because we bought in bulk, took the whole building, 
they were they were prepared to give us a discount to the open market value because they knew that to try and sell down all 72 apartments individually was probably going to take them anywhere between 18 and 24 months to do that. Their bondholders wanted money back straight away. So, so it worked, worked for them, works for us very well. So um, those are the sort of ways we're, we're out there looking into the market. You've got a nice little niche. We've got a nice little niche. Um, you know, I've, fortunately, with my nearly 30 years in the UK residential markets, um, you know, we've got quite a few contacts, so we're able to sort of leverage on those contacts and, and find the opportunities. And tell me, how do you plan to exit? Um, you know, I, I heard some discussion around, um, you know, that you may optimise pricing by dripping out. If you're buying a block of apartments where there might be 50 <coughs> apartments in there, you might be able to sell five a quarter. Being yep. a seven-year product towards the end, you might drip them out. Correct. Or you might even be able to sell to an institutional investor. Can you talk about that dynamic a little bit? Yeah, I mean, we see three kind of main routes to 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 uh, eventual sale. So so firstly, you're absolutely right. So take example of, of that building in Birmingham that we acquired of the 72 units. Now, we're a seven-year fund. In year five, we could, we could, if we felt it was the right way to do it, start dripping those 72 units five, six at a time into the marketplace. Their individual capital values is, you know, a little bit over 100,000 pounds. So, so they, they'll be bought very quickly as individual units. You can't clearly put 72 into the market in one go because you'd basically candlelight the price down. People go, it's obviously a full, full sale. Can't. So what we would do is, is we'd spend the last two years of the fund, we have a luxury of that time to be able to drip these down. So that's one, one potential uh, route out of the market. Secondly, as I said earlier on, the institutions, uh, they love this as an asset class because of the stability of the income. Um, but of course, at three or five, eight million pounds, when you're a billion dollar fund, you don't want to be buying, otherwise you'd have just so many assets, it wouldn't make sense. However, uh, what they've indicated to us is that with a big portfolio, which might be hundreds of million, as a single entity to buy that portfolio would be extremely interested. Um, now, of course, the great thing is we're buying and, and looking for yields in excess of 7%. They're not. They, you know, they're, they're funding their pension annuities, which are you know, at very low rates at the moment. So they need four or five percent to to satisfy their requirements. So and you'd be very happy to sell it to them at four and five percent yield. Very happy to sell it to them at four or five percent yield. We'll get that yield compression, which obviously will have a dramatic yeah, impact on price. capital value. Uh, so that's second route into the marketplace. And, and and again, we wouldn't necessarily have to do the whole portfolio. It could be that we could see uh, benefits in selling some parts of the portfolio down. Uh, individually uh, and still have a bulk of a portfolio which is might be a couple hundred million which an institution would like and then of course the third route would be to effectively look to list the entire portfolio as a as a as a REIT um, which is is something which I think would have quite a lot of attraction there are there are a number of those starting to happen in the UK so um, that could be a third and, and the size of the first uh, fund is how much the full the full value of that? So, it's so asset total asset value is is about ninety million sterling, nine zero sterling, yes. um, and, um, and and that includes our, our debt in there. 
as well. Okay, so there's yeah. about 55, 60% debt in there. Is yeah, that yeah. I think right? we've, we average, we're averaging just under 60%. We don't want to go over 60%. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we don't want to risk too much of equity. You know, worst case scenario is that we had another big global financial crisis, house prices took a big hit, mm -hmm. down another 15%. You know, if that was the case, uh, by the fact that we've 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 not fully committed all our equity with with you know with debt, as it were, um, that still gives us plenty of headroom there. Uh, and also because we're collecting the strong dividend yield, that's not going to change even if, if the capital value drops. Um, you know, it, it it really protects the downside. Well, I think the the one of the things that appealed to me is the fact that if you work the numbers out, if you were to have a fifteen percent drop in residential house prices across the portfolio, even though you've bought at the discount. Mm. So it was 15% below that again, yeah. which is probably a headline much larger yeah, fall. So sort of 30% headline you, you, fall. You, yeah. You're still sort of, um, if you take into account the income you've earned over the seven years, you would end up sort of even as a worst case scenario. Yeah, I think uh, probably which, even slightly, is, just still slightly ahead. Which is pretty attractive. Yeah. Um, so this is, yeah, this is really one of the reasons why we see this as a, a great diversifying asset that's not particularly related to many of the things that many Australian investors are exposed to, whether that be commodities, banks, Australian stock exchange, Australian property. Yeah. Um, so it's a great diversifying factor. Rob, thank you very much for taking that, taking us through that. It's really interesting, a nice little niche in the market. Thank you very um, much. As I said, thank you very much for joining us Inside the Rope. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.